they weep, they celebrate, they rejoice, they go through the entire spectrum of human emotion. And not only that, the launch service itself we read about lasts not one hour, not two hours, but from early morning till midday. That's about six hours. And if you thought that wasn't uh, amazing enough, this doesn't just stop at the launch service. The people of God gather together every day for the next seven days to hear God's word preached and taught. All in all, we, we, we find ourselves looking at a heightened sense of excitement amongst God's people, a heightened sense of expectation, a, a buzz and a hype around what's happening here. You know, one commentator even suggests that, that the worship service didn't actually stop after the end of the seven days, but kept on going until the 24th day of the month. So 24 days straight, they have worship services held. And that's where we are at, at the, um, in our passage today, the 24th day of this month. Now, I, hopefully I... Uh, was I able to give you somewhat of a picture of what's happening here? Because when we imagine it in our minds, Christians have a, a term for uh, what's happening. It's something that all Christians long to see in their generation. And we see it happening in Nehemiah's generation. It's a, it's a revival, a, a great awakening, a specific moment in time when God's spirit works ex exceptionally powerfully in and amongst his people. And because of that, when God's people respond in an exceptionally powerful way to his word, when the feeling of, of dryness and, and lukewarm faith is overtaken by a deep sense of conviction and devotion towards God. Chapters 9 and 10 give us a brief glimpse into what Nehemiah's revival looked like. And because of that, it gives us a glimpse into what a genuine work of the Spirit, a genuine revival, a great awakening can possibly look like for Kingsway. So the purpose of this talk is twofold. It's to give us a clarity as to what a genuine biblical revival looks like, so we know what to look out for in the future if God works. And two, to earnestly, wholeheartedly desire it together to pursue it and ask God for it as we move closer and closer to our own launch service. So let's look at the first point that we find here. You know, the first thing to note about this revival is probably the most easiest to miss. And it's in the list of the names that we read about in these two chapters. Now, if I were to ask any of you what your favorite Bible passage was, I'd imagine that none of you would quote a verse that says a list of names. If it is, then text me now and prove me wrong. But I, I, I'd imagine that that's not the case for any of us. Because I don't know about you guys, but when you read your Bibles, or when I read my Bible personally, and I come across a, a list of names, especially the Old Testament names, we glance over it once, maybe try to pronounce some of the sort of funkier sounding names for kicks, but all in all, we sometimes tend to flip that page of the Bible 
and ignore those names altogether. But as Kingsway, we, we do not believe that most of Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, except, you know, the ones with the list of names. We believe that all of Scripture is breathed out by God and is useful for teaching, lists of names included. And it's important to point out that the author here is 100% intentional in recording the names of people. All throughout the book of Nehemiah, in fact, we come across vast, long lists of people. Because behind every single name that we read about is a person. And behind a list of names is a real, living, breathing community. See, 24 days after the launch service, God's people gather again, perhaps for the 24th time. And they do the same thing that they've been doing since the launch service every day. A quarter of the day, they listen to God's word. And another quarter of the day, they make confession and worship God. And we read about who was specifically present at these meetings. You might expect that it was just the most important people, the most religious, the most elite, the most serious about their faith. Sure, they might have, a majority of people might have gathered on the first launch day, but after 24 days, surely it's just a, a, a few. But we read that it wasn't. It was just ordinary people. And I'm going to read out these names. Uh, I invite you to join me as I read it and maybe, maybe try to pronounce those names as well. Um, let me just read out all of them. So, Nehemiah 9, uh, starting from verse 4. So the Levites, there was Jeshua, Bani, Kadmiel, Shebaniah. I love this one. Bunny. That's his name, Bunny. Uh, Sherebiah, Bani, Chenani. And then verse 5, Jeshua, Kadmiel, Bani, Heshapneah, Sherebiah, Hodiah, Shebaniah, Pethahiah. And then we move on. In verse 10. Nehemiah, Zedekiah, Sariah, Azariah, Jeremiah, Pashul, Amariah, Malkijah, Hatush, Shebaniah, Malak, Harim, Meramot, Obadiah, Daniel, Genethon, Baruch, Meshulam, Abijah, Mijamin, Maaziah, Bilgai, Shemaiah. And then again in verse 9, Jeshua, Benui. Kadmiel, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Kelita, Peliah, Hanan, Mika, Micah, Mika, let's go with Micah, Rehob, Hashabiah, Zakul, Sherebiah, Shebaniah, Hodiah, Bani, Bininu, and we keep on going. The chiefs of the people, Parosh, Pahat Moab, Elam, Zatu, Bani, Bani appears again, Bani, Asgad, uh, Bebai, <laughs> Anonija, Big Bigvai, Adin, and so on and so forth. And if the point wasn't uh, drawn uh, more, more clearly because of that, the author actually adds that, you know, and all the rest of the people, <laughs> the priests, the Levites, the gatekeepers, the singers, the temple servants, and all who have separated themselves from the peoples of the land. 
So we'll be here forever if I list all 50,000 people that were present. But you get the point. An entire community represented by each individual responds. So what do we make of this? Well, revival leaves no one out if it happens genuinely. It, it doesn't leave anyone out. It doesn't leave anyone behind. The lists in Nehemiah 9 and 10 are a record of people who are present. Individuals like you, like me, with lives of their own, with a personal faith in our God, with a personal relationship with our God. But time and time again, throughout the book of Nehemiah, we read that these individuals come together as one man, as one person, as one people. Revival happens when individuals profoundly encounter God in his word, only to discover that others in the community are being moved in the same way. To see people left and right of us, united under one desire to worship him fully. This great awakening that we read about in Nehemiah is not restricted to Nehemiah or other leaders or the elite or the fair few. This great awakening is happening in the entire community. God moves his spirit through his people in revivals, not just in isolated individuals. You know, it's not all too uncommon to have uh, individual Christians have a deep sense and a deep desire to know God. And, and because of that, maybe feel a sense of frustration that the, the majority of the community do not seem to feel the same way. But, but a genuine revival is a profound move of God where the entire community feels the same way. Where we are united as one man to hear from his word and respond together in worship together. It's not just when pastors and elders of the church are at the prayer meeting, but when the entire community is there, not because the pastors or the elders told us to, but because we're, we're there together, all of us, because we want to. We've chosen to be there of our own accord. A genuine revival is not a revival of individuals, but a revival of people. It might start off with one or two, but eventually this conviction flows out and is owned and wielded by the people. If God is to move powerfully in our church, it is going to be in the entire community of people in our church, in our community. And if God so chooses to move in Kingsway in this way, and at one point we took a list of names, a roll call, if you will, of all those who took part in this great awakening at Kingsway, will your name be among them? Do you want your name to be listed among this list? Do you wish to see a great move of God work in this generation for, for God to bring about a, a great awakening? Well, if you do, then it's not going to happen without you a member of this community. It's a community response. It's not just for the pastors or the leaders or the serious Christians to pursue. 
It's for every one of God's people. You might ask, so where do I begin? Well, I think firstly, it, it starts with being involved in the community, seeing yourself as part, as integral to the community. Are you involved in it? Are you mingling with people who might seem to show or have a greater sense of the things of God and you desire to also have that? Are you, are you walking alongside them? Are you rubbing shoulders against them? Do you desire passion for Jesus from them? For those of us here who resonate with this conviction, who say yes and amen to the prospect of seeing God work powerfully in Kingsway, I encourage you to share it with other people. The biblical picture of revival is not just a one man or one woman show, but God using one or few people to ignite a fire amongst the entire community. So talk about your convictions, your passion for Jesus, your zeal for the lost, your vision to see lives transformed. Share it, declare it, talk about it, bring it into the light, no matter how unbelievable these convictions might seem. If you are a man after God's own heart, share that heart with others in our community. So that's point number one. Point number two, so speaking about conviction and passion, this is the second feature. You know, it is a good and godly thing to desire a great move of God in our churches. I think every serious Christian at some point or at some level would desire this in our churches. But before I move on, I do have to mention that we live in a time when the term revival has become different things to different people. You see, when I speak of revival, I'm not referring to what some people have dubbed revivalism. So let me distinguish uh, what the difference is between that. Uh, revivalism is this concept, an idea that we can, as Christians, get together and do a certain list, uh, do a certain number of things to um, invoke God's spirit to come and, and light a fire in our hearts. It's, 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 it's a mechanical way of understanding revival. It's seeking so-called you know, signs and wonders uh, for the sake of it or, or, or manipulating the meeting in a way that, that elicits a, a emotionalism for emotion's sake. And unfortunately, there have been cases in the church's past where this has happened and it's damaged people. It's, it's hurt the church. And it continues to do so, to be honest with you, today. But revival cannot be broken down to an exact science, which is what revivalism uh, suggests. We've got to be careful that our earnest desire to see the gospel revive this generation and beyond it is not reduced to a man-made science. To not, be, uh, not find our assurance in, in manufacturing revival in the things that we do. To think that we can do it, we can't. Revival is purely a work of God. God says when revival happens and where revival happens, not us. But having said that, in chapter 9 of Nehemiah, we find an a incredible emotional response from the people that gives us a glimpse of what a true emotional response looks like in the context of revival. 
It's found in a prayer. And it's interesting to note that this prayer is the longest prayer recorded in the Bible. And that's really interesting. Um, if you want a Bible overview, um, particularly of the Old Testament, this prayer has it. This prayer is a Bible overview of the Old Testament, of the entire history of the people of Israel. It traces the history from Genesis, Exodus, Joshua, 1 Kings, 2 Kings, uh, 1 Samuel, 2 Samuel, their exile, and even now their return from exile. It, it traces the entire timeline of the Old Testament. So if you want a rough summary of the Old Testament, read through this prayer. But having said that, what, what does this have to do with revival? Well, a, a true genuine revival is not simply a sudden or manufactured outburst of emotional excitement, though it is never less than emotional response and excitement. I do have to say that. But a true genuine revival happens when God's people are humbled to the ground. And that is what we read about in Nehemiah 9. This isn't just a recap of the Old Testament. It is a reflection and a prayer and a heart-wrenching confession of God's persistent, constant faithfulness to his people and their persistence and constant rebellion. So I'm going to read a couple of lines uh, from this prayer. It's too long for us to go through uh, in full. I invite you to do that uh, in another time. But let me just uh, read an abridged version. So I took a bit of uh, passages here and there, verses here and there. And uh, hopefully this gives you a, a rough picture of, of the prayer itself. You are the Lord. You alone. You made heaven, the earth, and all that is in it. You are the Lord, the God who chose Abram and brought him out and made with him a covenant. You have kept your promise, for you are righteous. You saw the affliction of our fathers in Egypt and heard their cry. You came down on Mount Sinai and spoke with them and gave them right rules and true laws. You gave them bread from heaven for their hunger and brought water for them. But they acted presumptuously and stiffened their neck and did not obey your commandments. They refused to obey and were not mindful of the wonders that you performed among them. But you are a God ready to forgive, gracious and merciful, slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and did not forsake them. For 40 years you sustained them in the wilderness and they lacked nothing. You multiplied their children as the stars of heaven and brought them into the land that you had told their fathers to enter and possess. And so they ate and were filled and became fat and delighted themselves in your great goodness. Nevertheless, they were disobedient and rebelled against you and cast your law behind their back. In the time of their suffering, they cried out to you and you heard them. But after they had rest, they did evil again before you. Yet when they turned and cried to you, you heard and many times you delivered them. You warned them in order to turn them back to your law. And yet they acted presumptuously and did not obey, but sinned against your rules. And many years you bore with them and warned them, yet they would not give ear 
Nevertheless, you did not make an end of them or forsake them, for you are a gracious and merciful God. You have been righteous in all that has come upon us, for you have dealt faithfully, and we have acted wickedly. You know, it's one thing to know about the mistakes of your past or the events of your past, but it's an entirely different thing to own up to those mistakes. As verse 33 sums up, you have been righteous in all that has come upon us. You have dealt faithfully and we have acted wickedly. A defining feature of revival is a profound recovery of God's immense love towards us, despite the immense evil we commit against him. You know, so often we look at our own faults, our own mistakes, and rarely do we feel the immense offense we cause our God. We know in our minds, if we've been churched long enough, of what is right and what is wrong, what is sinful and what is not. But deep in our hearts, too often, we don't really own it as our own actions, do we? We oftentimes blame it on circumstance or other people. And more often, we, we try not to dwell on it for too long. Yes, we sin, but... Aren't we all sinners? And we use that truth as an excuse. But, you know, the Bible says in the New Testament that as sin increases, grace increases all the more. That when we embrace, in a sense, our sin and fess up to it, own it and call it for what it is and recognize our past as not a past filled with uh, innocent mistakes, but a past filled with active, willful moments of rebellion against God who created us in his image. That magnifies God's grace all the more. Perhaps one reason why we so often in our Christian lives struggle to fully appreciate God's grace in our lives is because we, we don't really grasp the fact that all too often we grasp a hold of sin a little bit too tightly. But what we read about in Nehemiah 9 is a genuine revival opening the eyes of God's people softening the hearts of God's people to see and feel the fullness of sin, of their lack of trust in God, of their persistent idolatry and unfaithfulness. And, and this is what happens in revival. As we, as we comprehend that, that, that deep truth, that unfortunate reality in our lives, as our heart breaks and humbles us to the ground, the fullness of God's grace becomes a whole lot clearer. Jesus meant what he said when he said during his Beatitude sermon that blessed are the poor in spirit, for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. And nowhere does this become more true than in moments of genuine revival 
brothers and sisters, you know, sin in the scriptures is referred to at oftentimes as a sickness. A sickness that is worse than COVID, worse than cancer, worse than any type of illness imaginable. It is, in fact, the illness of the human heart. But do we treat it as if, like some people, unfortunately, across the world, as if COVID isn't real, as if sin isn't real, as if it isn't a big deal, as if it will somehow go away? You know, unfortunately, I myself and, uh, seem to live as if this is true when I think about sin, as if it isn't real, as if it isn't a big deal, as if it isn't really that contagious. Or worse yet, as if it doesn't exist at all. And sadly, I think, unfortunately, it, it, that's the default state for many of us. That we treat sin like it's not a big deal. But hope is, in this prayer, if there were ever a people that were like that, if there were ever a group of people that treated sin lightly, that treated sin dismissively, it was the people of Israel. And these are the same people that are confessing fully and wholeheartedly their sin. If they could do it, surely we could too. What we see here is a heartfelt confession not sidestepping their past sins, not, not embellishing it or, or, or making it less offensive, but to call it as it is. This is a definitive mark of revival. To say together, God, you have dealt with us faithfully every single day of our lives. And we, in turn, on every single moment, have acted wickedly. Are we prepared to do likewise, to call our sin as it is, to not sidestep it or ignore it or, or worse yet, excuse it altogether, but to reflect on our lives and, and own up to our evil? If we are there, if you are saying yes and amen to that, then revival in our generation might be closer than we think. We move on to our first, uh, third and final point. As a response uh, to this heart-wrenching prayer of confession, a radical commitment is promised in chapter 10. And it's not just a verbal commitment, because, you know, if you make a verbal commitment, people forget. But they make it official by writing a covenant, a, a contract of sorts, and sign their names to show that they are serious about this. To say, hey, if I mess up in the future, you can call me out on it because I committed to this. You know, one of the marks of true moments of revival is how much it fundamentally shifts the day-to-day -day practices of God's people. Both in scripture, we observe this, and both throughout our history in the church where God has radically changed the lives of people. It's disruptive. It's radical. 
See what happens here. Firstly, they, they commit to not marrying into families that are not the chosen people of God. So in other words, they commit to separate themselves from other people, from other cultures. So I, I do have to uh, mention this uh, before I go anywhere, that this is not a verse that approves of uh, racism. Because it is clear uh, in the same Old Testament that all people, whether they are Jews or not, all people are made in God's image. We have instances throughout the history of Israel where people who are not uh, ethnically Jews come and join the family of God. Okay? Every person, every culture, every race is valued by God. And the whole reason why God chooses a people for himself is for those people to grow up and become a light unto all the nations. To be blessed in order to be a blessing is how we might put it. So to understand what, we, uh, what is going on here, we need to remember uh, the context, the, the history of the people of Israel. Think about it. If you read throughout the Old Testament and, and trace a, a commonly occurring theme, it's this. The people turn to God and the people of the land, so people around uh, the, the people of Israel, tempt them away from the Lord. They, they lead them away. They influence them to uh, being uh, idolaters and practicing uh, the sin that uh, the people practice. They were led away from God because of the peoples of the land. And that, that happens consistently and, and constantly throughout the Old Testament uh, story. And to be fair, we look at passages like this and we go, oh, well, it's just an Old Testament passage. It's not relevant to Christians today. But the Apostle Paul actually picks up on this theme. And he says, do not be unequally yoked with unbelievers. For what partnership has righteousness with lawlessness? Or what fellowship has light with darkness? Or what accord has Christ with Belial? Belial is another way in the name for the devil. Or what portion does a believer share with an unbeliever? This command to separate ourselves from the so-called peoples of the land is not just an Old Testament feature. It is a New Testament command as well. So you see, for the people of Israel, the danger was with people who weren't Israelites. In other words, the people who worshipped other gods and lived in a different way. For the people of God today, for the Israel of God today, that, that's us, the church. The danger is with people who are not believers. Same thing. Who are not people of our land. The culture around us which worships other gods, which advocates a life that is lived in, in diametric contrast to what God has called his people to live in, to live in a different way, with different priorities and different motivations, to live for the self rather than to live for God and so on. You know, the danger is still alive and well as much as it was for the Israelites that we ought not to be unequally yoked with unbelievers. So which has more say in your life? Culture or Christianity? The, the culture of our external life or, or, or the Christian faith in, in our internal hearts? How are we raising our, our, our children, the next generation of Kingsway? 
How are you raising uh, your children if you are a parent? Are we letting the voice of culture bear more weight than the Bible's instruction to, to bring them up in the Lord? How are we uh, utilizing the time that God's given us? Are we letting the voice of culture, which insists on putting our career and, and individual happiness first above all else, take away from maybe prioritizing other things in life like the community of believers? How are we managing what we own, our, our possessions? Are we letting the voice of culture dictate a me-first mentality? An attitude when we think about money, uh, our income as our own, rather than affirming what the Bible says, which is that everything we own is not ours, it's, it's for the Lord, that God has given us opportunity and gifts and financial blessings so that we might be a blessing to others? Are we doing that? Are we letting the culture influence us? Are we letting our Christian faith influence us? It's one or the other. You know, speaking of our possessions, the second commitment centers on how they handle their possessions and finances, uh, finances uh, in light of this revival. And I know uh, a lot of us have a general rule uh, when it comes to our giving. Uh, I would say you know, 10% of our income is generally a, a good uh, uh, indicator, a good, uh, yeah, a good amount, I think, uh, that most of us kind of land on. But in verse 32, they commit to giving a third of their shekel. Shekel is like dollars for them. It's, it's their form of, uh, uh, yeah, it's, it's their money. So a third of their money to the house of God every year. So is the application then, let's start giving 33% of our income instead of 10. That's definitely not the point. Uh, although, although there is something to be said here. Because as we read on, note that the repeated phrase we keep encountering in the next verses is the word first. 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 The first fruits of the ground. The firstborn of the calves. The first of our dough, etc., etc., etc. So, so after experiencing a, a deep, heart-wrenching sense of God's goodness and conviction for their sin. This is the response that people give to God. They give their best. The best of their possessions, whether it's their calves or children or their food or whatever it might be. You know, the point of the passage is that the people here are so moved by God in this moment of revival that their possessions, which were originally of first importance, become secondary. When uh, what they commit to investing into is not in themselves, nor their security, nor comfort, but to use whatever they have to build up the house of God, to invest it in the people of God, to invest the best of what they have for the purpose of God. So while this command does not, uh, while this passage does not command us, does not command us to give a third of our income. <laughs> it, it does command us to be exceedingly generous in our giving to the church as a proportionate, appropriate response to the gratitude we feel towards God. Giving to the house of the Lord 
giving to the church, so to speak, is not supposed to be done legalistically. It's supposed to be done generously, without compulsion, willingly, as a proportionate response to what we feel God has done for us. The application here is not to force increasing or giving, right? Because that misses the point of voluntary generosity. And to be honest, it, it won't last. The, you know, the idea of separating ourselves from the non-believing world and its influence and, and, and this idea of uh, excessively giving away our possessions and our first fruits, uh, both point to the same application. Respond in proportion to God's grace, as the Israelites are doing here. You know, if I could say uh, this, uh, a genuine convert to the Christian faith is fairly easy to spot because their lives look radically different from when they weren't a Christian. And, 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 you know, in moments of revival, the ordinary things that we observe in the Christian life become uh, heightened, enhanced, and, and in some ways extraordinary. So, so when you see a life of a Christian uh, called to not conform to the ways of the world, but be transformed by the renewing of their mind. We see in moments of revival that actually happening so often rather than all too less than we might want. In moments of revival, we see the command to give, not reluctantly or under compulsion, but to give what we have decided in our hearts to give, knowing that God loves a cheerful giver. We take that command and, and Christians in moments of revival will take that seriously and give whatever their heart uh, directs them to. The, the act of setting ourselves apart from the people of the land and, and committing to giving the best of our possessions to God, to be perfectly frank and honest, is a difficult, they're two very difficult commandments. It seems almost radical, almost impossible. And, and in some ways, it really is. And we have to acknowledge that. But what we also have to acknowledge is even though these two commandments and what we see here happening is radical. Both are absolutely biblical and expected of God's people. And I'm the first to acknowledge that committing to these two things is not an easy thing to do, even as we know that it is expected of us. But that's the point. In genuine moments of revival, when God's spirit falls on his people, it isn't just one or two people doing these things. It isn't just the majority hearing these commands and going, oh, I don't know about that. I don't think I can do that. But it's the entire community that responds by saying, yes, Lord, amen. This is what we see in Nehemiah's revival. Ordinary people, just like you and me, who have struggled with sin throughout their history, committing fully, finally, at this moment, to live seriously for the Lord. I want to see that in Kingsway. I hope you do too. To see what's happening in Nehemiah's time, happening in our time. Where commands like this are not treated as impossible tasks but an appropriate, glad response to the immense grace that God has given us in Jesus. Friends, it's my personal desire to see something of the sort we read about in Nehemiah 9 and 10. As we come closer and closer to launch, as I prepared 
uh, the sermon throughout this week. The, the, the parallel between the events that we read about here in this book and what's happening in Kingsway is pretty hard to miss. Just as the people in Nehemiah have rebuilt the temple and, and rebuilt the walls and had their own launch service, in, haven't we attempted to, to build up the temple of God in the form of God's people? To build up the structures of the church in the form of walls, metaphorically speaking? And don't we also have a launch service coming up in three weeks' time? And I couldn't help but wonder, think, thinking that what I wouldn't give to see what I read about and see happening in Nehemiah 9 and 10, happening in Kingsville, where it isn't just a few minority of the church that express a desire to love God, but all of us together. The entire community rallies around the amazing goodness of our God and Jesus, where our prayers are so much more than a learned act, but an honest, heart-wrenching confession of our sinfulness and reliance on the forgiving God that loves us still where the actions of our church reflect the way in which God has loved us, a radical commitment to be serious in our obedience to his word, to, to say yes and amen to Jesus's words. If you love me, you will do as I command. I wonder if God might grant us something similar of the sort we read about in Nehemiah 9 and 10, that after 27 days of our launch service, that we might see something similar. But here's uh, how I will end. We can't make it happen. Only God can. If there is one thing I want us to take away, it is for all of us, all of us, all of us in the launch team to earnestly desire this. Not just be content about reading about it in Nehemiah or hearing it preached today on Sunday morning. To not just be content about knowing that it happened somewhere in the past in Israel's history, but to earnestly desire to witness and experience it in our own church's history. That is my prayer, and I hope that you would join me as we pray uh, for Kingsway um, as we continue to edge closer and closer uh, to our launch. But that's it for me today. Uh, I've got two questions here for you. And I will post that up on the chat thread. And um, yeah, feel free to discuss that in your breakout rooms or in your gathered uh, houses.